And then, then when I'm done with that, I'm going to ask the congregation to join us in prayer because Simone's going to be heading off on Thursday to, to Africa on her mission trip. So I'm going to ask her when I'm done, I'm going to ask her to come up and um, I'm going to ask all of us, if, if you feel led, come and lay hands on her. Nelson's going to lead that time of prayer. And, uh, but we want to make sure that we commission her and send her off uh, to be a great blessing. And the mission shall be joining, I believe, eight others in, uh, in Nairobi. So um, she leaves Thursday morning. So that's a little bit different today. Just thought I'd tell you what, what direction I'm going so I don't catch anybody by surprise. So let's get, join together and let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we are so grateful for those who have given themselves to the instruction and the blessing of children, both children in this church and um, children in our community, Lord God. And we thank you for the Christian witness that our teachers have, Lord God, how they are able, um, even in the public schools, to influence for righteousness sake. And so we give you praise and we give you thanks. I thank you for um, all of the staff who are also involved. Not everybody is, uh, is in the classroom teaching, but we have those who are in libraries, perhaps uh, um, janitorial staff and other, other ways, Lord God, that all go forth to the education of, of the children. And I pray, Lord God, your grace be upon them. I know that the summer is short here, and I pray, Lord God, that you would guide them, help them to collect their thoughts and help them to prepare well, to teach well, and to honor you in this time, Lord God. So we pray that your grace be on them. And Lord, I know that many of our parents also homeschool their children, and I guess they never actually go back to school, Lord God, but we also pray that your spirit fill them and continually enable them to to teach their children also, whether it be in the home or in a homeschool co-op, Lord God, to teach their their children well as well, Lord God. So we we thank you for those who are involved in uh, education, Lord, some will be not only be teaching in uh, uh, children, but also um, at, in high schools or in, uh, in colleges, Lord God. And so we pray your grace and your mercies be upon them. And we thank you. I pray, Lord God, that we are able to support them in, uh, uh, in whatever way possible. So guide them and lead them. And we pray your grace in Christ's name. Amen. So, Simone, if you'll come up and stay here, I'm going to have asked Nelson to just. Come to the front here. If you feel led, come and you can lay hands on her and, and pray with her in regards to her mission trip. And Nelson's going to lead.
Amen. <clears throat> Grateful for all the prayers, for all the assistance, uh, spiritually, materially, all of those things. Um, normally, I at this time, I say... Um, Mrs. Parham is going to take children uh, K through fifth grade out the door to my left and your right. But Mrs. Parham ended up with a, a bit of a crisis this morning. She's okay, but it is a bit of a crisis. And so anyways, uh, we will not have children's church this morning for K through fifth. Um, nursery is open, so uh, Mrs. Beck uh, or Mrs. Smith, it looks like Mrs. Beck, um, nursery is available. And um, so, kids, you're stuck with me today. And I know that's just really exciting. <clears throat> so with, with that, we're turning into our Bible. Let's turn to our, in our Bibles to Luke chapter 20. We're going to be looking at verses, um, Luke chapter 20, verses 41, all the way through 21, verse 4. So Luke chapter 20, beginning with 41, all the way through Luke chapter 21, uh, verse 4. Way back when we were in Luke chapter 9, we addressed a really important subject in, in this study. And the subject had to do with important questions or questions um, that have incredible significance. And the question is this. Who is Jesus? Perhaps maybe the most significant question we're ever going to have to answer in our lifetimes. And Jesus asked this question of his disciples. He said, listen, who do people say that I am? And of course, there were all sorts of answers. They say, well, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead, or you're one of the prophets, or blah, blah, blah. And then he asked an even more important question. He said, but who do you say that I am? And this is where we get Peter's really famous answer. Luke um, presents a very uh, abbreviated answer. He says, you're the Christ of God. But we see in Matthew, he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And I said, that's kind of King James-ish, because so, that's where I learned it. So you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. So you are right, Peter. I am the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is something that is revealed to you by my father in heaven. So an important question, who is Jesus? Out of this flows everything. How we answer that question will affect how we live our lives. And so today, we're actually, Jesus is, in a sense, going to ask that question again. He's not going to ask it to his disciples. However, he's going to ask it to the religious leaders. Who do you say that I am? Because how they answer that question or how they address that question impacts how they live out the rest of their lives. And so that kind of forms the background of our study today. It is a question that was asked and answered of by his disciples. And now the question is addressed to Israel's leaders. And by extension, let's not forget, it's being asked of you today. This is not just some hypothetical that was asked and was important back 2,000 years ago. But it's a question and it's an answer that is imperative that we address today. And everybody really answers that question. If you're here today, you've probably heard of the person of Jesus Christ and you have answered that question, who is Jesus? Well, you may have come up with some answer uh, that may satisfy you, but it may fall short of the biblical standard. So we want to make sure that how we answer that question aligns itself with what Jesus said about himself. All right, so that's kind of the, the background we also need to make sure that we understand the, the larger context in which this passage is found. Because you'll recall that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem as 
a kingly Messiah. He came riding in on a donkey to fulfill what the prophet said. So when Jesus came riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem on a donkey, people understood what he was doing. Why do I know that? Because they all responded, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are ascribing to him royalty. He comes in as a royal dignity. He comes in as the prophetic Messiah, and the people recognize that. So he comes in, he rides in on a donkey, like the prophet said the Messiah would do. The, the, the crowd responds, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Messiah, as he enters into Jerusalem, where does he go and what does he do? The people expected him to go over to the, the, the um, Roman fortress, the, the, the fortress of Antonio, and kick Pilate and the Romans out, but instead he goes into the temple. He goes into the central place of Israel's worship, the center, not just of their worship, but of their entire being, their entire life, was, um, was, was housed, if you will, that the, the temple was central to their life. He goes into the temple, not to the fortress of Antonio uh, or Antonia, but he comes into the temple and he turns over the tables and he says, my house. My house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. In other words, not only am I the kingly royal Messiah who was expected to come in on a donkey, as the prophet said, but now I'm, I'm cleaning my house. I'm not worried too much about Rome right now. The problem here is you've per- my people have perverted my worship to such a degree it is utterly unrecognizable. I'm cleaning house. And then the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders said this, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the right to do what you just did? Who gave you the authority to come in on that donkey and receive adulation and praise? And who gave you the authority to toss over those tables and declare this to be your house? Who gave you that authority? Well, Jesus asked to address them, and he didn't directly give them an answer. Um, But today we're going to see him respond to that question. I gave you that background because today's text is a, a response to that question. By what authority do you do these things? We've also seen then after Jesus cleansed the temple, the religious leaders came together and basically kind of a tag team tried to uh, ask him questions to get him to stumble, to trip him up. They wanted to catch him in a, um, a misspoken word for the purpose. First of all, they, they would hope that he would be discredited in the eyes of the people, but ultimately they wanted him to say something that would be worthy of a death sentence because they, they were conspiring to put him to death. They do not like the, what he is doing, so they need to eliminate him, get rid of him. So they asked him a series of questions and Jesus addressed them all. And now Jesus has been on the defensive. He's been answering questions and, and, and silencing his, question, his questioners. Now Jesus goes on the offensive and he begins to, and he's going to ask the question. So um, let me just give you a quick preview. This is, this is kind of the flow of my message today. All right, the flow of our text. Because our text looks like a series of disjointed stories. We have Jesus um, asking the question, about who the Messiah is, and then we see the hypocrisy of the, of, of the scribes. Jesus calls out the hypocrisy of the scribes. And then we see the very uh, well-known story of the uh, poor widow who gives the, the, the two mites in the temple treasury. And these three accounts seem to be somewhat like three separate disjointed accounts, but they actually flow together. So I want you to see the flow of where I'm going to go today. First of all, we're going to see Jesus declare that he is the Messiah who is the, and I'm going to put forth the the divine Messiah. And as the divine Messiah, he has the right to declare the bankruptcy and hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees and of their worship and to exalt the widow in her worship. And so basically what he does is as Messiah, as divine Messiah, he declares that the, that the religious leaders worship is bankrupt and the true worshipers 
are exemplified by this poor widow. So you see that the, the downtrodden get lifted up and the high and mighty get put low. And this is very, um, this was, um, of course, when, when Mary, I'm going back to Luke chapter 1, but Mary and her song, the Magnificat, said basically that God um, humbles the proud and he exalts the lowly. And this is exactly what's going on. So are you with me so far? All right, you know where we're going? All right, hope we don't get lost. I don't guarantee I'm going to follow that order. But that's my intent. So um, let's go ahead. Let's read God's word together or follow along with me. And then we'll we'll look at our text. So um, listen to the word of the Lord. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins and he said truly I tell you this poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on and this is God's inerrant word father we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word, Lord God, that you have instructed us that we not need to be ignorant of your ways, that we need not to be ignorant of you, that we need not be ignorant of who Jesus is, because you have made it evident through your word. I pray that you would give us grace, help me to speak well. I pray that the congregation hears well. I pray that all of us would grow in the grace and truth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Jesus now goes on the offensive and it basically goes like this. And some of the other Matthew and uh, Matthew uh, begins this account by by um, Jesus asking the the religious leaders. Tell me the Messiah, whose son is he? The Messiah, whose son is he? And that's where we pick up. Whose son is the Messiah? We should note that when Jesus asks this question, whose son is the Messiah? He is not seeking to entrap the religious leaders. He is not seeking to um, discredit them. He is not simply seeking to stir theological debate. Jesus is asking this question to reveal truth. And I think this is important. Really, here's the thing. Jesus is doing evangelism. Even he's two days away from being crucified by these people. And in just a couple of days, these people are going to work circumstances to make sure that Rome kills him. Jesus knows this. And Jesus is still working to make sure that they know exactly who he is. So even at the very end, Jesus is doing evangelism. He's revealing the truth to people who are denying the truth. So the Messiah, whose son is he, is the question we see, especially in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Whose son is he? Well, the expected answer, they give. Whose son is the Messiah? He's David's son. Everybody knew that. Everybody understood that, the, that God had made a promise to King David many years earlier that he would have a son who would sit on the throne and rule over the people of God. That David would have a son who would sit on the throne and rule the people of God. In fact, the promise of the covenant was that there will never be a person lacking from sitting on the throne of David. And everybody also knew it wasn't Solomon, David's son. Solomon was a... Solomon failed. So 
So who is the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, he's David's son. We know that. He's going to be a descendant of King David. Everybody knows that. In fact, when Jesus, oftentimes when Jesus was um, going about, people would cry out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. They understood that Jesus was the son of David. They knew that, that he was um, of the lineage of David. And I think they're even making a messianic claim when they say, Son of David, have mercy on me. So whose son is he? He's the son of David. Everybody knows that. And so while the Messiah is truly a physical descendant of David, we're also going to see that he is David's Lord. And that's where Jesus goes. But he says to them, how can then they say that the Christ is David's son? When David speaks of the Christ as, as his Lord. So let's see if we can kind of unpack this. It gets a little bit difficult, so stay with me here. Jesus affirms them, yes, you are right. The Messiah will be of the lineage of David. He will be of the bloodline. He will be a physical descendant of David. I affirm that. Jesus is going to affirm that. What Jesus is now going to do is that that physical descendant of David is going to be much more. Not simply a blood relative of David. He is something Greater, something far beyond a distant relative. That's where Jesus is going to go. And so he goes to the scripture. He goes to Psalm chapter, one, chapter 110, verse 1, which, by the way, I believe is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's used in Hebrews. It's used here. It's used all over the place. It is a recognized messianic psalm. It is a, it is a psalm that many people recognize spoke of the coming Messiah. And so Jesus goes to Scripture. And perhaps we could just pause here for a moment to realize that when we end up with an issue, Scripture is our source. So Scripture is our source. Uh, it is sufficient for all that we do for life and in faith, for how we worship, for how we live our lives, Scripture is our source. When we end up with a difficult situation, we look to principles in Scripture to find out how we live our lives. And so Jesus goes to Scripture to teach them truth because it is in the Scriptures that we will find truth about God. And so he goes to Psalm chapter 1, 110, verse 1. And he says, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? Whose son is he? He's David's son. How can they say that the Christ is David's son when David says he's my Lord? Are you with me on this? So Jesus is not going to discount the natural element of physical lineage, but he's going to demonstrate that the Messiah is much more than an heir. And he quotes this psalm, a psalm that David wrote. This is what David said. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let's stop there and think about this. The Lord, David writes this. This is David writing. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The operating assumption here is that a father is always superior to a son. That greater honor is ascribed to a father. In other words, nobody would ever say that greater honor should be given to Isaac over Abraham. Abraham always has greater honor than Isaac. Abraham is the father. Isaac's the son. Isaac's a great guy, but greater honor always goes to Abraham. The father always has greater honor than the son. So here, David is calling his son his Lord. Are you, do you get that? The Lord is saying to my Lord, the Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to be David's son, and yet David is saying he's my Lord. And this is the, the crux of Jesus' question. If the Messiah is David's son, how come David calls him my Lord? You need to answer that question. There's your dilemma. How is it that David, who is the father who should be ascribed greatest honor, submits himself to his son? That's unheard of. So that's the dilemma. How could a descendant of David stand above David as his superior? 
The Lord said to my Lord. Now I want you to note a couple of things in your Bible. Some of you in your Bibles where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, go there. You there? All right. And for some of you in some of your Bibles, um, Lord is in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. How many have that? All right. Some of you don't. This is the way that the translators have designated that when um, to translate the word that we translate as Yahweh. All right. So when you see capital O, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Hebrew, it is ref- it is the four letters YHWH, which is the covenant name of God. So this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. Moses said, who am I going to say sent me? You want me to go to Pharaoh and you want me to say, set my people free. Great. When Pharaoh asked, who sent you? What am I going to tell him? Some bush out in the desert? No. Tell them I am sent you. I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. That is the word we pronounce Yahweh. I am Yahweh. The covenant name of God. He says, to my people, I've revealed myself in a lot of ways, but I reveal my covenant name to you, Moses. I am Yahweh. So here, Yahweh says to my Lord. This is the word Adonai. And pious Jews would never say the name Yahweh. They would replace the name Yahweh with the word Adonai. Sometimes we sing that song, Praise Adonai. So now you know where it comes from. Um, it's just a substitute because the name of Yahweh was too holy Jews would not say it. In fact, when they would write it, they would get to that, those four letters, and they would stop and go cleanse themselves and ritual purification before they would write. It was so holy they wouldn't speak it, and they would make sure that they are ritually purified before even writing it. And so they would use the word Adonai as a substitute. So they're reading along in the, in the text and they come to that, those four letters that we pronounce Yahweh and they would just say the word Adonai. So Yahweh says to my Adonai, and we might translate this, my sovereign Lord. Yahweh says to, David is saying, Yahweh says to my sovereign Lord. He's saying my son is my sovereign Lord. My son is my sovereign Lord. And this is where Jesus is taking them. If he's David's son, how come David calls him my sovereign Lord? That doesn't make any sense. Fathers do not call their sons Lord. And they certainly don't call him Adonai, my sovereign Lord. So this is a paradox that can only be resolved if Messiah is both human, that is David's lineage, his son, And he is divine. That is, he is the sovereign Lord of David. In the same person. So, who is the Messiah? Whose son is he? He's David's son. If he's David's son, how come David calls him my sovereign Lord? That doesn't make any sense. Unless he is the divine son of God. This is where Jesus is going. I I know it's a... It's a little nuanced. It's, it's, it's a little tough. But this is where Jesus is going. He's speaking to academics. He's speaking to people who know these things. So how is it if, if he's a son that he bows before he bows to his son? This doesn't make any sense. And so, and he says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my sovereign Lord, sit at my right hand. So, This sovereign Lord is both a physical descendant of David, which Jesus is. We see that in Matthew. We see that in Luke. He comes from the line of David, but he is also the divine Son of God who is the Lord of King David. And David knew it. David knew that he would not only come from my loins, from my lineage, but he would also be my Lord to whom I bow in honor and worship. Remember, who do you say that I am? That's our question. That's the question that Jesus is addressing to the scribes and the Pharisees. Who do you say that I am? Do you think I'm just some rabbi teaching 
You think I'm a great teacher. But you don't understand. David, the greatest king who has ever lived, knows exactly who I am. Do you? This is where Jesus is going. Sit at my right hand. This makes Adonai, my Adonai, equal to Yahweh. Sit at my right hand. He's co-equal. Look at what happens way over. I want to read a couple passages of text that I think are significant here. Luke chapter 22, verse 69. Um, For me, it's the next page over. Um, This is what Jesus says. He's on trial. Before the, um, before the Sanhedrin, before the council. And he, and he says this. Um, they're, they're asking him if he's the Christ. And he says this. From now on you will see the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Are you the Son of God? From here on out you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. And then we go over to Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 36, I think is a significant passage of text here where we see um, a very similar passage. So Acts chapter 32, 2, 32 through 36, we, we see this. Peter's speaking, he's preaching his sermon on Pentecost, and he says, this God, this Jesus, God raised up, and that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens when he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is the one who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. It was not David. And Jesus has all rule and all authority. And this is the Jesus that we are preaching to you. And then just one more passage of text in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Um, We're going to pick up in the middle of sentence, but here it is. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That that he worked in Christ when he, God, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of all who fills all in all. Who is Jesus? He is the one who is co-equal with the Father, seated at the right hand, to whom is subject all authority, all power, all wisdom, all glory. Everything is subject under his feet. Who is Jesus? And so if he is David's son, how is it that David calls him my sovereign Lord and declares that all things will be placed under his authority, under his feet? He will rule over all, even over David and over you, scribes and Pharisees. He is Lord over all. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. How is it that he is just, he's certainly not just of the lineage of David. He is something far beyond just a a physical descendant of David. And he will do this until all his enemies are a footstool. In other words, all things will be submitted under this son of David. He is not just simply an earthly king. He is a divine king who rules over all and all are submitted to him. See, there was this expectation that the Messiah would topple Roman rule, but instead he comes and conquers the powers of hell that keep men in their sin. And this is where they're missing the boat. How come you didn't go to the fortress of Antonia and go and kick Pilate out? Because Jesus came to, to destroy the power of the devil, not the power of Pilate. Pilate's nothing. He came to destroy the power of sin and he does it through the work of the cross. So, with that, Jesus concludes this. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? He leaves them to make the obvious connections. So you want to know who gave me this authority? 
Who gave me the authority to ride into Jerusalem and make these messianic claims and receive these words of adoration of Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to fulfill the words of the prophet and to come in and turn over and purify the, the corruption of the temple. Who gave me that authority? Do you really want to know this is who gave me the authority? So he answers the question. They want to know who are you? Jesus said, this is who I am. I hope you are perhaps getting a a more clear idea of the person of Jesus Christ. Because now, as the authority, as the Messiah, as the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who is David's Lord, Jesus now condemns false worship and false religion. Because here's the thing, a false understanding about who Jesus is will always lead to false results. As Messiah, he has the right to call out false representatives. Uh, And this is what he's going to do. Because false results flow from a false understanding of Jesus. If you do not have the right understanding of Jesus, you will end up in weird ideas. If you have a wrong understanding of who Jesus is, I believe you will even have a wrong understanding of the Scriptures. And the reason being is because the Scriptures point to him. And if you have a wrong idea of who he is, you will not understand what the scriptures are saying. Jesus even says this. We'll get there when we get, I don't know, to the end of Luke someday. But he's teaching about all the scriptures. All the scriptures point to me. And so if you've got a wrong idea about him, you're going you're gonna to be misguided in your understanding of scriptures. So, guess here's an appropriate place to say, what about you? Whose son is he? Who is the Christ? I don't know how to put this nicely, so I'll just be blunt. You're not okay where you are. If you are not united with Christ, you are not okay where you are. If you are united with Christ, if you've come to Christ through repentance and believing upon his name in faith, you are joined with Christ, united with him. You are a son, a daughter of the Most High God, and you are in the greatest place you can ever be. But if not, you are not okay. And I know the world says you're just okay the way you are. And many churches may even say you're just okay the way you are. You're not. You're not okay the way you are. People say, I hear this all the time. Well, God doesn't make junk. No, he doesn't make junk. He didn't make sinners, but you're a sinner. I don't know how else to tell you. We're all sinners. But this is why Christ came, so that we, we would repent. We would, we would repent of our sins. Believe on the gospel of, that Jesus Christ died for us since he took our place. I'm a sinner, and the wages of sin is death. And Jesus died a sinner's death for me, he took my place, and he now gives me his righteousness. My sin is removed, and the righteousness of God is imparted to me, and now I am a friend of God. I was by nature a child of wrath. Now, but God, by his grace, I have been reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you are in union with Christ, by repenting and believing upon the name of Jesus, you are okay. Probably got a lot of work to do. He's conforming us into his image. That's why we gather together as a church in this building at 10 o'clock on Sundays to help with that. And if you're not a child of God, if you have not repented and called upon the name of the Lord, I urge you, I plead with you, after church, come talk to me. Nelson prayed for Simone. Nelson will talk to you about who the Lord is. Charlie's sitting up here. He'll talk with you. Probably anybody in this church would love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Christ. So what about you? Who do you say he is? It's important we get this right. So now, as Messiah, Jesus begins to expose false religion, the false worship of the scribes here. And since he is Lord, then it is only... It seems only to make sense that one would conform their life to his ways. And so he says, now... Beware the scribes, beware, the, beware, beware. 
of the scribes. What do they do? They walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor. And so, I won't detail every single one of these things. They love to be recognized. They love people to say, you're the most exalted supreme being I've ever met. You are such a great, uh, wonderful, wonderful person. They dress in a way that brings attention and honor to themselves. They love the recognition of men. They're not even, you know, sometimes I think of these, the religious leaders as, as, as men-pleasers. They're not. They're self-pleasers. They, they want honor for themselves. They love the recognition of men. But Jesus says, outwardly they look like sheep. Outwardly they look like a shepherd. But inwardly they're ravenous wolves. He says, they, beware the scribes. They look really good in their long robes. And they receive the adulation of, of, of the public. And they sit at the places of honor and the places of worship. Look what he says. But they devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. The idea here is that there's a lot of discussion about what this means that they devour widows' houses. This, the word devour is a very, very strong word. And there's a lot of suggestions. I won't go into everything um, that could be happening. But basically, more likely than not, is a widow. Remember, there were three classes of people who needed protection. God um, calls for protection to three groups of people. Who are they? Widows, orphans, and aliens. Why? Because they are voiceless in the community. So a widow might come, she has a house, and perhaps some creditor or somebody is seeking to take her house or seeking to um, do something that is going to harm her. This is all she has. And so she would go to the courts. She would go to the scribes. She would go to the Sanhedrin, to the Pharisees, to seek protection from this unjust person who's trying to take her sole possession, her livelihood. And she would seek their protection. And they would make long pretenses of prayer. Oh, God, we're protecting this woman and we're doing all of these great things. But instead, what they're actually doing is they are scamming her. And they're going to be the ones who take her house. Why? Says they devour, and it could be done in a variety of different ways. Maybe they end up holding the note on the house, and then they kick her out, or little by little they kind of take over. But either it doesn't matter. The point here is beware of them. They look good, but ultimately their goal is to destroy and to kill. And they do it with flowery speech. They do it in great long prayers, but their prayers are pretentious. Beware of them. And then Jesus says this. Be certain of this. Their condemnation will be greater. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that other than this. It does appear that there are some degrees of punishment. And I should also note this. Hypocrisy is a sin that Jesus most greatly condemns. You know, prostitutes came to him. Tax collectors, cheaters, all kinds of people came to Jesus. And, and you never endorse their sin. But he was civil with them. Not with the hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Woe to you seven times. You're whitewashed tombs. Jesus came against hypocrisy. And it's probably, whether you're in the church or out of the church, Probably the, the, the one sin, the one crime, the one behavior that m is most galling to most of us. We hate, we despise hypocrites. Let's not be that. So, Jesus declared who he is. I'm the Messiah. I am the one who sits on the throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father and everything is subject to me. And I condemn the worship of the scribes and the Pharisees because it's pretentious. It is not sincere. And now he shows a counterexample. The counterexample is of this poor widow. He demonstrates now what is true worship. Who is the true worshiper? Who is the one who honors the Messiah who's high and lifted up? So having condemned the selfishness of the scribes, Jesus now finds a praiseworthy example of a true worshiper. 
And the setting here is in the temple. There would have been um, 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles where people came and they put their free... These were free will offerings and these basically paid for temple expenses. These weren't tithes. These were just free will offerings. And people would go through and they would drop their money into these receptacles and it would pay for um, upkeep of, of, of the temple. And so rich people are coming by and they're dropping money in. And you'll note Jesus never condemns the rich people for dropping their money in. That's just not his point. But what catches his eye is this. A poor woman, a poor widow, a widow. Poor. She's our main character. She puts in two copper coins or two leptas. This is basically a quarter of a penny in today's money. About It was one one-hundredth of a denarius. And... That should clear things up, huh? A denarius was a day's wage. So you would have to work a hundred days to earn one of these copper coins. She puts in two. It's amazing. She has two and she puts them both in. It's all she has. She could have put in one. I think that's the point here. That's one of the points that Jesus is pointing out here, that she puts in both of them. And Jesus commends her for her generosity. Notice he doesn't condemn the others for putting in what they put in. Rather, he teaches the size of the gift is, uh, doesn't necessarily mean there's a sacrifice or the size of the gift um, doesn't mean there's a, there's a great sacrifice. See, most of us don't mind giving. In fact, probably, I think most people in this church are very giving. I know we're very giving. I've I've seen us rally. Here's where most people have problems, giving sacrificially. Giving's not a problem. I got an extra 10 bucks, an extra 20 bucks, or I've put some money aside for this type of purpose. I can give that. I got no problems with that. Giving sacrificially, that's a different issue. Jesus is commending this woman not because of the size of her gift, but because of the heart that's behind it. Don't, don't miss this. In other words, small things can often be taken for granted. Sometimes we think, oh, well, if I do this, it really won't make much of a difference. Or, or who am I? This is, this is a tiny little church in a tiny little town in the middle of Arizona. And so I can say that I'm the pastor of a tiny little church in a tiny little town in the middle of Arizona. It's relatively insignificant. Maybe not to you, it's certainly not to me. But in the scheme of things, if you go anywhere in the country, if you travel, and you go to California or Oregon, or you go back east, and you say, I go to the church on Randall Place, they will have no idea what you're talking about. They have never heard. They can say, my pastor is John Lake, and they'll say, never heard of him. I pray he's a good guy. But over the past nearly 18 years, this church has gone into all the world. Sometimes the world has come to us. I'm just going to brag on you a little bit. Sometimes the world has come to us. We've had international students come here and and stay the weekend with us, and we have shared the gospel with literally the entire world. We had a lady come here, and you know she was studying, and she was from China, and she became a Christian. Her dad was one of the high-ranking, like third high-ranking officials in communist China's Chinese government. And she went home and shared the gospel with him. All right. Really? Yeah, really. Gone to all the world. Sometimes it's because we go out. We've gone to our neighbors. And going to all the world means we go to our neighbors. And I've seen us take care of our neighbors, our next-door neighbors, our parents, those who are living in our home. And we... we been able to, to go to the skate park and, you know, the gospel's preaching to people who nobody else is preaching the gospel to. Praise God. 
You can go around the world and go across the states. You can go down to Phoenix. Man, you can probably even go to Payson and say, oh, the church on Randall Place. They will not know who you are. Make no mistake. That does not mean this is, that what we do here is insignificant. God takes no thought of how big the gift is. And we get so wrapped up in big things. I need to be popular and I need to get books and I need to sell out this arena and I need to do this and I need to be a celebrity. And I mean, no, you need to be faithful to what God has called you to do, even if it appears insignificant. Do it joyfully. Do it with all of you, all of your being like this woman. She didn't say, well, I only got two leftists. Really, how's that going to take care of this great, big, grandiose temple? I'm going to be faithful to the thing that God has given me. Big or small doesn't matter. Small things can easily be taken for granted. I, uh, <clears throat> I'll give that example. I'll wrap things up here. Jesus con- so Jesus is now contrasting her with the prideful scribes, indicating that she is the true worshiper of God. See how things get flipped? Everybody thinks the scribe is the true worshiper of God. He says, beware of them. Watch this woman. Be like her. Don't be like the scribe. Be like the woman. Be faithful to the things that God has given you. Big or small, doesn't matter. Be faithful and, and, give, and, and be joyful in the things that, you, that God has called you to do. I get the feeling that when I read this text, this woman loved the Lord with all that she had. What she had was two leptus, two copper coins, and she loved the Lord with all she had. And it was a joyful thing. I think that's where Jesus is going with this. Isn't just give and don't think. It's a joyful thing. This is what God has given me. I am going to dedicate everything I have. All of my talents, all of my abilities, all of my thoughts, all of my loves, all of my joys, all of my passions, all of my pleasures, all of things I am giving to God that He would be glorified in them. So, I'll, I'll close with these three reminders. First of all, in our text today, hopefully we learn that Jesus affirms that he is the Messiah from David's line. He is not only a physical lineage, of the physical lineage of David, but he is the Lord, high and lifted up, seated at the right hand of the Father. Also, as Messiah, he warns of selfish and empty religion. Let us not be guilty of selfish and empty religion. And third, as Messiah, Jesus provides a counterexample of what a true worshiper is. And I pray that we would be people who worship in spirit and in truth. So with that, let's spend a few moments in just silent reflection and, I don't know, ask the Lord to show us, is there anything I need to know that was talked about today or is the Lord revealing anything to you and maybe just make a commitment to to do what God's calling you to do. Let's let the Holy Spirit just move in your hearts now and, uh, and show us what he wants us to do.